You're listening to The Room Block Podcast, a series of conversations with compelling professionals from the world of events and hospitality. I'm your host, Jen Salerno. I've spent the last 20 years in different facets of the industry, working alongside a variety of people that have one common goal, to serve our customers by creating memorable experiences. Now, I want to share with you the passions, inspirations, and challenges of the individuals who make it happen. In each episode, we'll hear insight and perspective from two guests that fill some of the many roles within this incredible industry. Welcome to The Room Block, and enjoy your stay. Hello, Room Block Podcast listeners. I'm coming at you from the night before the presidential election, which by the time you listen to this, you will know more about the outcome than I do right now. So hopefully everybody is hanging in there, staying safe and sound and sane. Uh, I know that's been a little bit difficult over the last few days, weeks, months, (laughs) hoping for some smoother times ahead. But, you know, one of the things that has made 2020 so tumultuous are the various social injustices that have been placed front and center in the news, right? I mean, it it's something that has been difficult to look away from. Uh, it's been something that we are facing and are feeling very frustrated with. I, at least I know I am. And honestly, it's something that I've been struggling with as far as what to do or say. I mean, I know that there's no shortage of information out there, and I've absolutely pursued a few different ways to educate and inform myself. But as far as taking any action myself, for most of the last few months, I've been at best an observer. But then I realized that Well, I do have a podcast and it is a platform for me to bring information to people. So, you know, what I do with my platform of the podcast is to tell people stories so we can all learn about other perspectives. So what better way for me to contribute to the conversation of diversity, equity and inclusion than to have a conversation that I can bring to my audience. So that is what I'm going to bring to you today. And not with two, but with three guests. So this will hopefully be a different kind of conversation than some of you have heard before. I know there's been plenty of conversations lately about this topic, but today it's going to be less about what we can do or how we should do it, more about the why. Why should we do this? Why should we care? Why should we take steps to make changes? As Simon Sinek says, you know, start with why, right? (laughs) So that's what we're going to do. So I bring you today three different event industry veterans who are going to be sharing their whys, their stories, and hopefully some of what you hear today will give you a little more insight into why diversity, equity, and inclusion is a conversation that must continue. So stay tuned for my conversation with Shamika Jennings, Gus Martinez, and Anthony Molino. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of the Room Block Podcast. Today is a different and exciting episode. I'm actually breaking format instead of 
two guests, like I usually have. I am welcoming three. And this is the first time I've done this, and it's pretty exciting. Um, we are talking about a topic today that is timely and very important. And that's why I figured that three guests would be the right way to do it justice. So we are talking about the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I have three experts with me today who are going to give their experience in their service on this subject. So I'll just start by saying who we have, and then I'll have everyone introduce themselves. But we have with us Shamika Jennings, who is the Director of Meetings and Partnership Development with the National Coalition of STD Directors. We have Gus Martinez, who is the founder of GSM Consulting, and Anthony Molino, who is the Director of Hotel Sales with Chew Chicago. Hello, and thank you all for joining me today. Hello. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, so as we always start by uh, introducing our guests, we want to just find out how everybody got into the industry because we, of course, do have industry professionals with us. So Shamika, can you start and just let us know how you got into the industry in the first place? Sure. Thank you so much for having me first off. Um, but yeah, so I got into the industry actually in college. I found out about uh, meetings and events as the student affairs director, if you will, when I was in college, I planned all of our events when I was an undergrad. And for me, this tangentially is related to the conversation we're going to have. I found that that was the only time that a lot of my colleagues on campus got along. We had a lot of like racial issues on campus, but when I was planning events, that was the one place where we all kind of came together. And I really found that to be really beautiful and thought like, hey, I'm really good at this. And I really like seeing people of diverse backgrounds come together to enjoy one another and learn from one another. Uh, so let me find out more. And I found out there was a whole industry that I could actually grow and learn in. So that's really kind of how I jumped into the field. Very cool. I love that you've said that events were the place that everyone kind of came together that I think that's a common theme in, in the events mm -hmm. industry in general. All right, so Gus, how about you? Yeah, so I'm sure this is gonna be really original. I kind of fell in the industry. <laughs> right. <laughs> like a lot of us have. Um, so my, my story is 17 years ago, um, similar to Shamika, I was in, uh, in college and my sister actually was a manager at the Peninsula Hotel. And it was during the holidays and they needed um, just extra bodies for the holidays work in front desk. And she called me, she's like, hey, we need help. I think this would be really cool. It's a fun hotel, you'd like it. Um, and she's like, are you interested? I was like, let me think about it. Um, and then I thought about it for a day or two. I'm like, what's the peninsula, right? Cause I, I mean, I'm 19 years old, you know? So all I know are just like, the Hampton ends of the world. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, it was such an eye-opening experience because when, when I came in for my interview and, you know, those who are from Chicago, those who are familiar with the Peninsula brand, you know, very, very luxury high end. And, and I'm walking towards the elevators and, and the lobby and I'm just like, whoa, I can work here. <laughs> um, and that was 17 years ago. Never thought in a thousand years I, I would have stayed in that industry um and but i've been very blessed and honored and privileged to to have grown in in the uh the hospitality industry that's great you know i feel like a lot of people have that have been on this show have talked about 
a luxury hotel as kind of being part of the reason that they got into the industry. Maybe not because they worked at one, but because they walked in the door and saw this gorgeous place. And honestly, that was how it was for me with the Palmer House. I remember taking the escalators up. I saw the lobby and I was like, I could work in here. Okay. (laughs) All right. So how about you, Anthony? Um, Yeah, I actually love this question because it's when you're younger, who knew that there was so many opportunities inside hotels and so many different facets? So I didn't, (laughs) for sure. Like Gus, I kind of fell in this as well. I took a job out of college um, to work in sales and management for a radio group. And it was in St. Joe, Benton Harbor, Michigan. And I was on my way there, like in a U-Haul, moving up to St. Joe, where I got a call that I was laid off. (laughs) They were bought by another company. And so they said, well, you can stay with us or you can, but but you'd have to move to Detroit. And at that point I was like, I don't, I don't wanna go to Detroit. I don't even know what I'm doing in sales and management and radio anyway. So um, I ended up moving to Chicago and was living with a friend of mine from college. And I got, I transferred um, to this beautiful restaurant. It's not there anymore, but it's called Red Lobster. (laughs) Um, So I guess that's my luxury luxury hotel. Um, But I was there because I was a bartender there in college. So I was bartending, it was on Ohio and Grand and the director of human resources from the Marriott Mag Mile lived in the building above me, above the restaurant. And so she would come down, you know, once every month or whatever and would sit there. And finally she was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I- I'm just trying to figure out what to be when I grow up. And uh, she introduced me to the red coat program at the Marriott. And two weeks later, I was, I was a red coat. And from then on, I've been in hotels and uh, the hospitality industry ever since. Love it. Yeah, I mean, you're so right. And a few of you have the same story, right? You're just kind of like, what is this industry? And and then you realize that there's so much to it. So excellent. Well, like I said, the three of you I have on the show today, because you all have participated in a important way on the topic of diversity and inclusion. Um, and honestly, I saw that Anthony had a blog post about um, something from MPI that he was in. And that is kind of what made me even think about doing this topic in the first place. Um, And then I had seen Gus and all of his, all of the work that he's been doing lately with his new consulting company. And then uh, Gus suggested to include Shamika in the call as well, because they knew each other from the past. So I'm Again, very happy to have you all with us today. And what I would like to do is have each of you kind of go through and talk about, you know, now we know how you got into the industry, but now can you tell the audience how you actually got into working on this topic? How and why is diversity and inclusion so important to you? Shamika, could you start? Sure. I mean, I think from how I got into the industry or how I started is really how I got involved in the diversity and inclusion space because I saw firsthand when I was in undergrad, I went to undergrad in a very small rural area in Tennessee. I literally lived on top of a mountain and um, there were Confederate flags everywhere on campus and it was very hard to be in that space. Um, But seeing the power of events where like, you know what, that didn't matter. The things that people considered that or they thought separated us um when we were together like having social events playing bingo doing like a learning session um 
it disappeared. And I, I really found value in that. And so as I navigated my career and I did jump straight into um, events after that, I always had it in top of mind. Like this is the purpose of why event planners, because I'm on the event planning side, um, this is why we do what we do. It's really to make sure that people understand like we can grow and learn from one another and that was really the foundation of um, how I got into the work and why I continue to stay in the work. Well you know what I mean it's really the best possible reason and outlet because it is I, I mean I love the fact that you're including event planning as just you know events in general are what bring people together and educate people and try to you know get um, a group of people together to to talk about and keep conversations going. And so then it just is a very natural progression for you to then kind of, it's like, yeah. the, it's it's ingrained in you and in your work and it was from day one. So that's excellent. And so can you tell us a little bit about your work with ASAE? Sure. Um, recently, um, I think, it, or mid-COVID, I guess, at the, right before COVID started, I was accepted into ASAE's Diversity Executive Leadership Program. And it's a program that's been going on, I want to say, since 2007, um, where they bring in small groups of 12 um, diverse candidates, um, diverse in um, sexuality, gender, um, as well as race, um, to really grow together and learn from some of the best individuals to kind of diversify the C-suite and diversify uh, board leadership. And it's providing the tools and providing the connections and networking and the opportunities um, to really kind of showcase the talents that we have and the skills that we have and how, you know, we want to change what boardrooms look like and change what the C-suite looks like. We want it to look more, be more representative of what the United States is. And so that's where ASE kind of dealt, created this DELT program. And I'm in the first, what is it, six months of my program. So far, it's been very different since we've been in COVID times. Normally, we would have, I think, met like on three different occasions in person. But we've been doing a lot of um, virtual tools. We've been provided coaching and things like that so that we can really kind of grow. And do you have to put together you know, programs um, or or do you know different like webinars and that kind of thing or is it more of just kind of a closed group that talks among talks amongst yourselves it's a combination of both it's not that we have to put on any programmatic work how however all of us are passionate enough that we want to we want to educate others um, I think the ASAE call for abstracts is currently for 2021 is out there and all of us are like what can we do how can we share how can we educate um, we get very active in writing articles for associations now um, in presenting and so we don't have to as part of the DELT program but it's part of the leadership part of like we want to showcase um, diversity so we want to make sure we're putting ourselves out there so that people can see us because sometimes and I'm sure we might delve into this um, if I feel like if I don't put myself out there people will find a reason to not highlight people of color and I'm a black woman. So people will, will purposefully be like, well, there's black women don't exist because they don't see me. So therefore I have to go the extra mile of, of putting myself out there. And some, I imagine some of the uh, Delp scholars may feel that way too. I can't say, I don't know, but I know for myself, it's like, I have to put myself out there. Well, thank you for doing yeah. that. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's important. It's, it's courageous work and it's important work. So, and then no. I think you had mentioned that this is a, it's a two year uh, position yes. that you're in with ASAE, correct? 
Yes, it's for two years. And I think for my class, we're looking to extend it to three um, because we do want to take advantage of all of the opportunities ASE presents to us. And so with it, whether it's coaching or opportunities to learn, um, I think we get mentors as well to really kind of just navigate uh, a space that wasn't really meant for us. And so they are providing the support and tools necessary to do that. Um, and so it is a two-year term. However, with COVID kind of taking off one year, we're looking to extend it to three. Good. Well, I hope you can. It's again, it's a, it's important work, and <laughs> yeah, it's it's the goal. If not, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it on my own and keep kicking it down. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> Great. Okay, so Gus, how about you? How did you get involved in this space? Yeah, where where do I start? Um, so I think there's a few points I kind of want to touch on. There's a personal and, and professional um, perspective. Um, the first one being, again, being in the industry industry for 17 years, I've, I've seen a lot and I've experienced a lot, but I feel what I've seen the most is growing up in this industry as a Hispanic man, that there aren't a lot of Hispanic executives and leaders in this industry. Um, so I would say both there aren't Hispanic leaders nor a lot of people of color. So. I knew pretty early that there is work to be done. So that's kind of point number one. Um, the second point is I've been in the CVB world for the last nine years and the last six um, would visit Milwaukee and I handled their multicultural market. So, you know, a lot of the diverse markets and, you know, that was kind of my first time ever working with diverse groups. And I can pinpoint the exact client that when we were doing a site inspection and it just opened my eyes because it's just like you don't know what you don't know. And it was NABA and NABA stands for National Association of Black Accountants. And, you know, we're, we're, we're having a good site and we're having lunch and, you know, all my industry friends know what that is. You know, you just, you know, you're entertaining the client, you're, you're getting to know them on a personal level know more about their organization. You know, we've all been there a thousand times. But as we we're talking about accounting and, and how that affects the African-American community, they shared with me that in universities, black people make up less than 1% who graduate with an accounting degree. So this organ organization knew that there was a huge, huge um, discrepancy in the African-American community. So they formed this organization to help the, the black community, uh, but not, on, on not just the black community. They also work with the Hispanic community as well, the Asian community, so just people in color. And what they do is they hold regional conferences and they work with a lot of the Fortune 1000 companies. And during their conference, they actually have a component of a career fair. So they invite a lot of the top students in that host city uh, and they work with the universities to get the top students to go and attend these conferences for free. So at any given time, the students are able to either get an interview or an internship, or at the very least, get about five minutes with these Fortune 1000 companies. So just think of it how impactful as a 19, 20, 21 year old to meet with these Fortune 1000 companies and on top of that, they mandate that the students who do attend um, are dressed professionally. So you know, if, you're, if you're a male, you have to be in a suit from 
from eight o'clock to six, seven o'clock at night, right? Because it's all about they're prepping them for the for the real world. And that was just so I was just so inspired to hear that story. And as I worked with uh, my other um, organizations in, in the industry, like LULAC, Prosmanica, National Society of Black Engineers, Alpha Kappa Alpha, and so on and so on, they all had their stories. And it was just so inspiring. Um, unfortunately for my personal take, uh, unfortunately, COVID came along. I think we all heard about that. <laughs> just a little. And in March, you just a little bit, right? Just a little <laughs> bit. Uh, unfortunately, I was one of the casualties. So in March, my position was eliminated. Um, and that was a rough moment in my life. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners can, can relate. Um, and, you know, I put my entire identity into my job. And there were a lot of lessons when you stumble that you have to learn. And I think the one word for me was balance, right? So you should never put all your eggs in one basket. You should never put your entire identity in one basket. And uh, I learned, I learned that, right? And as I looked in the mirror, I told myself, what else am I passionate about? And it literally took two minutes and I knew it was diversity. I knew that was, uh, that was the the angle I wanted to go um, because I wanted to relate my tourism and, and hospitality experience because I think it's very transferable. And Jen, I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, you know, when I was telling you about my my new, um, as I repivoted my career and, you know, we should just not use repivot. I think pivot's awful. Why don't we use like <laughs> redefining, redefining, right? There you go. <laughs> um, yeah. And what I shared with you is that what I loved at the CVB level, and Anthony, I'm sure you can relate, is that we are the expert of our destination, but we're an educator. We educate our clients on the benefits of our city, the ins and out of the city. Like anyone can go on a website and learn A, B, and C on whatever city, but it's, it's those special nuggets that a CVB can offer, right? So it's the, I'm with you right next to you. We're gonna walk this journey together. And that's exactly what I wanted to do for diversity and inclusion, right? So I wanted to be able to help connect dots for leaders and employees. Um, because as of today, I don't think I've met one director who's like, diversity? No, I'm good. I don't want that. <laughs> but. <laughs> But equally, I, I feel like people aren't able to connect the dots. I think people know that it's important, but I, I question if they know why it's important. And for me, I think the why is more important than the how, you know? So it's not like, hey, let's, how do we get our employee to be diverse, you know, 10, 10 20% in the next two or three years? It's like, no, it's why we need to do that, the importance behind that. And that's where I feel like I want to step in and help people accomplish. That's amazing. And, you know, if the why is all those stories that you've heard from your clients over the years, right? The things that inspired you to take action or that should inspire others to include it as part of their organizations. So that's very cool. 
All right. Good. And I, I love the connection about the CVB being an educator. That's so perfect. And it's so true. So, Anthony, how about you speak a little bit to to that, your your CVB experience and also how you got involved in this space? Sure. Um, it's really hard to follow those two, though. <laughs> it's, this is some it's a good, uh, good, passionate story. So I appreciate you both of you for that. Um, mine was I, 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 I hate to say it, but mine was kind of an accident. Um, I grew up in the Midwest. I went to, you know, my town. I lived in rural towns. I had almost 98 percent white people in every school that I ever went to. The first time that I actually like interacted with black students was when I went to college and I accidentally walked into a black student union meeting. And that is how it ha legit. That is how it happened, and it's and it has been a great experience ever since. But um, I I literally have had actually no interaction, and so like implicit bias is a real thing. Um, and I, I hopefully we can talk a little bit more about that later. But I went um, how I got involved in this space is I was um, very active in the MPI community and the Potomac chapter, and um, this is about three three or four years ago. Um, we had talked, and when I say we, the leadership had talked about implementing a diversity and inclusion task force. Um, but to kind of go along with what Gus said, it was just to implement a task force. They never talked about why it needed to be there or who was going to be a part of it or what it was going to do. So because of that, it just never happened. And as someone, again, being completely transparent, I didn't know either. You know, I didn't, and I don't know if I really looked into why. Um, so it's it's these like these things I'm learning about myself as I go along, and I think that is also extremely important. Um, you always have to be open, you know, to learning and listening. Um, but we were at one of the uh, conferences, and a colleague of mine, uh, she was on the board with me. Her name is Rhonda Keys, and I will give her credit every day of, every day for this. She looked at me, and Rhonda's a black woman, she's a medium planner, and she looked at me and she's like, what is going on here? Like, where are my people? Where am I in this group? And I was like, well, right here. <laughs> she's like, no, I don't see me. I don't see me in this space. We talked about this, like, we've been talking about this for years. Why the hell is this not happening? And I just clicked in my head. I was like, oh, my God. You're not talking about us as industry professionals. You're talking to yourself as a black woman and you're right. And like, it just, all it took was one simple comment like that for me to be like, you know, mind blown. I totally get it now. So I was, so I was just like, you know what, let's do it. For me, like you said, the really nice words when we started that we were experts in our field. I love that you said that, but I am farthest, so furthest away from being an expert. I like to consider myself like an architect right now, like drawing a house out of crayons. <laughs> that, that's kind of how I am in this whole space is I'm here to do it. I'm, but I, I don't put a stamp on anything, but um, my next year, I, or the next year in MPI, I was president elect. And so I wanted to make it my initiative through my presidency to implement this DNI task force. And I had no idea what it meant. So, um, you know, I, I called all my friends. But what I did wrong is I called all my black friends, you know, it's like, and I learned very quickly, you just, just, you, you want to solve a problem. You don't call one person and expect them to do it for you. Now you have to completely understand again, which is what Gus was saying, the why you're doing it, you know? So I, I called one of my good friends, Carlos Pelham, and he was able to 
kind of opened my eyes as to what this means to set up this task force. And um, we were able to put together an amazing group of very diverse people um, ranging from like exactly what Shamika said earlier, you know, race, sexuality, gender, religion, um, all of it. Uh, we even have a vegan on there to talk about like food, <laughs> diversity. Throw that one in. Yeah, but it was it was cool because we spent a, a year, you know, lying out what the blueprint was going to look like. So when we did implement this task force into the community, and we didn't tell anybody about it, and I think a lot of times in this space, um, I think Gus you alluded to earlier, is a lot of times in this space you want to talk about what change you're doing, but then you just want people to know it, you know, but people knowing it is totally different than people seeing it. And so we wanted to make sure that we knew exactly what we were getting ourselves into, what we were doing and what we could provide in, in terms of being productive and change to the community before we even told anyone that we were doing it. So I'm so glad we spent that year doing it. And again, I have to give this credit to where the credit is due. You know, it's Carlos Pelham, it was Leslie Connolly who decided to do the DNI task force in the first place. And um and really brought the keys for starting it. So I do want to make sure I put those accolades out there. Um, but it's been great. I mean, we, we've been able to diversify the board of directors from one year to the next. It's a completely different look. And all people that have already been active. So it wasn't just because we were putting people into place because we wanted to fill slots. You know, all of our education has a DNI component to it. Um, we have made our task force into a committee where we have added a board director that is specific just to, to DE&I. Um, and then now with what's going on this year, we've have the large, the DE&I committee is the largest in the chapter. Um, we've got four different pillars of what we focus on with advocacy, governance, education, and just basically board um, training and leadership training. And the committee won an award at the MPI Global Conference, um, the RISE Award for Indus Industry Advocacy. So. We're doing something right. And I would love to say that this committee is done or not done, but like it's basically it's set for the next couple of years, but it is forever changing. And it's if we get complacent, then we're losing, you know, traction. We're losing the the whole purpose of why we're here in the first place. So I don't know, as you can see, I'm a little bit passionate about it <laughs> and I didn't mean to be. And I'm super, super happy um, that I've been able to kind of jump out of my white cis male um, Midwestern shell and totally embrace like what's going on in the rest of the world. So long story short, that's how I got into that space. Well, that's great. And, you know, give yourself credit too. It's, it's due there as well. So, I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that you're talking from a place of saying, you know, I, I fell into this by accident, but you are also, I mean, everyone's voice in this is important. So, and, and you really did it the right way by laying these foundations for success. So it's not just like you're paying lip service to the topic. When we all spoke the other day, we kind of talked a little bit about how one of the challenges is that there are companies or organizations out there who might just, you know, do it to do it for, you know, from a marketing perspective. So it, you definitely did it the right way, it sounds like. Gus and Shamika, can you guys each also speak to um, organizations that you've worked with? I mean, Gus, I know um, you're not with Visit Milwaukee anymore, um, but Shamika, within your organization with the with the Coalition of STD Directors, I mean, is there active work being done there within your organization? Are you are you seeing things happening there? Um, 
Yes, I will answer that. But I do want to give Anthony credit as well, because um, I'm appreciative that you listen to Rhonda, because some people can hear her say that, but not really internalize it. Because honestly, the only reason I rejoined MPI and I'm part of MPI Potomac too, um, is because I saw someone that looked like me on the board. And that's Devin Lewis, who is the president, the first black woman president (laughs) of the chapter. And had I not seen her, like that's really why I hadn't been active with MPI recently. I'd go to events to support, but I wasn't a member per se. But then I started to see people and also like the president elect is also a black woman. And so I'm actively seeing people that look like me. And so had you not really listened to her and taken that in, like that might not have ever happened. So um, I do think you do deserve credit because a lot of us um, people of color, we say things and people, Mm -hmm. like you said, like, you know, they're like, okay. Um, but they don't actually be like, you know, hey, I, what can we do about this? Like, how can I make this change? Why is this necessary? So you actually did all of that. So you do um, deserve credit, and I think you should pat Thank yourself you. on the back. Thank you um, But in regards to the question, I know with my organization, we're trying. It's hard. Um, it is, it's very, very difficult. I know for our organization prior to, it's something that a lot of my colleagues, like we're, my organization, it's, yeah, I want to say 50-50 as far as like um, people of color and um, white staff. And we had been asking to add a DEI committee or task force into our organization for a long time for our members. Um, we had a diversity like pre-conference workshop for um, our conf- annual conference last year. And we were trying to build that up and build the momentum. However, we just weren't given the funding or support necessarily. And that, so that was very hard. And then um, George Floyd's murder happened and then all of a sudden now we're trying to play catch up which something's better than nothing so I try to stay positive but had we already implemented it it would not come to like us playing from behind and running from behind so we don't have anything yet I think right now we're in the place where as everyone was wrote their beautiful little letters saying Black Lives Matter um, and that's <laughs> we're trying we're, we're I think we're so we're actively we're putting in steps we do have like we have a consultant that has come on board for our organization I think we're implementing some sessions for our annual conference to educate our members and hopefully we'll be getting our um, getting some our task force together as well but uh, there's just so much more that can be done and should be done so I'm not super satisfied but in our letter, we outlined seven action steps, seven things that we wanted to happen. I made sure that my boss, um, my immediate boss is our executive director. I asked him to like, what are the action steps that we need to have? We can't just say like Black Lives Matter. Like this is what we are going to do. So there's seven steps to hold us accountable. I know it won't happen overnight, but we're just kind of starting to check those off. So we're moving in a positive direction. That's great. And, you know, you brought up George Floyd and I was going to ask the three of you, I mean, Obviously, this is a topic that is so important and has been talked about before and, and and should have been talked about seriously for many, many years. Why is it? What happened? Why this past summer did it all of a sudden become so important? I mean, from your perspectives, do you do you have any thoughts on, on oh. what's happening? Yeah, go ahead. Jess and I are both <laughs> Everyone's like, yes. <laughs> go ahead, guys. Yeah, so uh, if I can... If I can start this composition, please. Um, and just to kind of give everyone a little background, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I shared this, but um, you know, after I uh, my position was eliminated at Visit Milwaukee, and you know, I wanted to dedicate myself to diversity. I actually enrolled over the summer 
into Cornell University for their diversity and inclusion um, certification programs. So that was about a, a 10 week program and it was so eye-opening, so thought-provoking um, ex experience. And anyone who's, who's looked into that, highly, highly recommend that. Uh, but Jen, to, to, your, to your question, why was it more triggering this summer than, than in years past, right? And I, I think that the big thing, if I can simplify it, right? Because this is, this, is, this is a conversation that can be had for hours and days and, 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 and so forth, right? Um, but I feel that the big thing is for people of color and, 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 and for black people is that we see the double standard, right? It, and it's the, you have to play by a different set of rules, right? And to the subtext would be then white privilege, you know? So for example, a person of color who walks on the street, who, who you know, um, you know, just to give you a great example. You have one person, you know, a black woman who walks into a Michigan Avenue and a nice store, Burberry, you know, the sales rep might look at her and just like, does she belong here? Does, does she have, you know, the, the, the funds to afford anything here? And if you take a blonde, petite, attractive woman who goes into that same store, they're given the benefit of the doubt of she can afford anything she wants here. She she belongs here, right? So you're you're judged by your economic background. Your your are you safe? Are you dangerous? Your education isn't questioned, and that's all within a two second glimpse. So to go back to the the murders um, over the summer, I think it was just triggering for us. Um, in the minority community because we're seeing black and brown people being shot and and on top of that n there's no accountability right and it's almost as if it, and i don't want to take things political at all but it's almost as if, if you have a badge you are almost untouchable right so it's actually quite scary to be a person of color and pulled over by the police because you don't know what can happen. Like, it just feels like you can get murdered. And I'm going to use the word murder in, in this sentence. And because you are a cop, you can justify and make whatever story you want to justify that, right? So that almost, for me, has elements of, of slavery, right? So it's just like, I can do whatever I want because you are a thing. You're not a person. So we're in 2020 and we're fighting human and civil rights. So sometimes it feels like 1920, <laughs> but we're in 2020. So um, I think for me on a personal level, I, and I use this, I have talked to a lot of people on, on, this, on this example is, do you guys remember Amy Cooper? Okay. Amy Cooper was the white woman in, in New York City at Central Park who was at the at a certain area where you're supposed to have a uh, a chain a collar for your dog and her dog was unleashed and it's an area where a lot of people like to do bird watching and there was a gentleman who was bird watching and he had asked her to put a leash on on her dog and she refused she refused she calls the cops and if anyone has seen it or hasn't seen it i'd certainly highly recommend it and I, I, found, I found that personally trigger, triggering because she almost had the, the secret formula and she knew it. 
the secret formula when, when she's calling the cops is that she says she's in danger, that there's a black person who's in, who's attacking her and she's she's fearing for her life. And she raises the pitch in her voice, even the gen even though the gentleman is, I don't know, 15, 20 feet away. And she knew if the cops came that they would look at her, white woman, they would look at him, black man, and that they would side in her favor. She knew that. And that's something that we need to tackle is the whole white privilege and that the whole idea that people, when you look a certain way, you get certain benefits. So I think my two cents is that and why things were very triggering for, um, for this summer. Right, uh, exactly. If, <laughs> add that to the long list, right? Go ahead, Shiminka, you, yeah, you um, were nodding before yeah. about. <laughs> I have additional thoughts as well. Um, for me, a lot of the things that I've been going on within the black community, have I've become desensitized to because it just, it happens. And at this point, it's kind of like another hashtag, another name. I'm sad. I'm sorry, but I don't have the energy to give to it because if I, if I really did, like I would be a fraction of myself. I wouldn't even be able to like continue. Um, for me, the thing that I think that broke the camel's back for George Floyd was twofold. One, a hundred percent was because we're in COVID times. Um, th there was no football. There was no bas basketball. There was no soccer. There was no form of entertainment people could see um, so that they can turn away from it, right? Because this is all you could focus on. This is all you, you can see. So therefore, that I think 100% was the reason. If we weren't in COVID times, it would have came, it would have went, it would have been another hashtag like so many people before that. Um, however, the world has stopped. So therefore, people were forced to look, and I'm grateful for that. The second piece was this murderer stood on his neck for eight minutes and 35 seconds. There's literally no way you can turn away from that. There's no way you can justify sitting on someone's neck for eight minutes and 35 seconds. That's, it's absolutely ridiculous and un absolutely uncalled for. There's a, like, I can't even imagine being the people standing there and sitting there recording for that entire time. And so I think those are the, re those are the two reasons why mm -hmm. his death, his murder escalated so much because we had to look at it. There was no way to, to not see it because we weren't being pulled in so many other directions like we would in normal life. We all were forced, we're all being forced to sit here and sit still in COVID times. So I had to watch, but no, not only did I have to watch for like one minute, I had to watch for eight. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. And so I think that's really what kind of showed people that we're not used to seeing this, that did not know that this was going on within the black community or did not believe. Now, I'm not going to say they didn't know because people know. They just don't believe that it's happening. And so now that's why the NFL has flipped coin from when Colin Kaepernick brought this up four years ago, mm -hmm. um, saying, hey, there's police brutality. No one's saying all police are bad or anything like that. Um, it's not an all or nothing conversation. We're just saying, hey, black people are getting murdered at a rate that's inconsistent with other races. And one, other races, you also should not be okay with, with people being murdered right. by the police. That's like, that's also just not fine. Um, that, that's, you know, if you don't want to tackle that, I, I can't add on things to my plate. Um, <laughs> but for the black community, we, we don't want, we don't want that's not their job. They're not the judge, jury, and executioner. Police are meant to just arrest people. So if you did something wrong, that's all they needed to do. So 
it's just been very interesting. And now that we've had the time, people are like, oh, in racism. So I know I was watching football yesterday and I saw the in racism tags in the in the back. And I'm like, you know, that's cute. Let me just watch my football game at this point. Like, you know, you don't really care. It's fine. I just enjoy football. I know you're terrible people. <laughs> um, but you didn't listen to Colin Kaepernick when he brought it up. And so I really think the main reason is that COVID's forced us to kind of stop and pay attention. Can I add to that? Yeah, yeah I think. Well, let's not also forget that he was crying for his mother. Yes. And I think that that even gets to some of the coldest people, you know. And I think you're right, Shamika, because the world was on pause. Um, We saw that and we had to look at it and we couldn't turn away. Um, But I also think, and I'm going to say it, but I think politics are are playing a huge role in, in how this has become kind of the, you know, the pillar of, of the movement right now. And it's because the way that our leaders have reacted to it in a way that is completely insensitive, um, they're missing the entire point of what it is um, and trying to make it now a reason for them to win elections or, or to lose, you know, and it's disgusting. You know, I wrote a letter on behalf, when I was for MPI, I wrote a letter to the community the next day and I got a lot of really great feedback and I got a lot of not so great feedback from it. Um, you know, calling out the murder as Gus said and Shamika said. Um, and that is the point, that is the part where I'm just so confused. You know, like I've have some family members that are in law enforcement and you know, having these conversations and the, the immediate reaction is, well, look what's happening in Chicago, you know, or look what uh, look what's happening on the news. Look what's happening. And I'm like that is not an excuse for what what happened here. And, and the fact that you even have to say that means you know that that was wrong. Mm-hmm. So why don't we focus on the one thing and say this was wrong, and then we talk about it and we figure out where to go from here. <clears throat> and I and I think the most annoying and frustrating thing of it is when people go back and look up George Floyd's you know arrest history. Mm-hmm. And they use that as a, a way to justify, you know, but I think at the end of the day, when you're having these conversations, it is, I don't care if he stole a snooker bar. <laughs> Eight minutes and 35 seconds on TV. And I mean, the age of social media, I mean, you're going to, people are going to pick it up. People are going to see it. This is going to be, this is a forever saved video, you know, and I, I, I hate the fact that it had to happen to him. I hate it. But the conversations that are coming out of this are, I feel, finally, like, warranted. Like, it's about time that we're actually talking about it. And, um, you know, with every protest comes another conversation and another explanation as to why. And obviously the world is divided, but at least we're to the point where we can have an open and honest conversation with it instead of just push it under the rug. Right, exactly. Well, I agree with you about the political landscape as well. And, you know, there's so many things that were just mentioned, you know, that or social media, um, COVID, you know, that are all, I guess you could look at them as a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, obviously, we know that a lot of it is a curse, but, but the blessing is that there are things that have come out of it that are forcing us to to stop and pay attention. So as as much as social media is painful from that standpoint, you know, it it, it gets overwhelming. But you're right; it's it's putting it front and center and saying you you can't look away. It is in front of your face all the time. So from that standpoint, I guess it's 
it's proving to help further the conversation. So we're kind of talking about some of the challenges that are surrounding this topic and some of the the attitudes and, and opinions. And, and that is something that has been painful for me over the last several months is the kind of excuse conversation or the, you know, the, the other side, not really understanding. And, and, and that is so difficult because it is disheartening to think that people make excuses or feel that way. And I, I you know, I don't, I don't mean to get terribly political on the show, but I just have to say, personally for me, it is just, it's been eye-opening to see some of the attitudes out there and it's painful. <laughs> but um, aside from me, what do you guys feel like are some of the biggest challenges or opportunities, whichever word you want to use, on this topic and as we move forward to move the conversation forward? I'll, I'll jump in. Um, there's a few. Um, I feel the biggest one is is the lack of representation and the power of representation, right? And, you know, let's, let's take it on a smaller scope with our industry. If you look and examine who are hotel general managers, who are CEO CVBs, who are executive directors at associations, more often than not, they're white men. And I know I personally, when I see a person of color who is in those roles, I think to myself, wow, like that's, I'm just not used to that, right? So we're, we're conditioned that that's the norm and that's a problem. And if you, if you go in a bigger scope, um, again, with my, with my new um, diversity consulting company, I've, I've been doing a lot of research and unfortunately it just makes me more sad when I discover this information. So as of today of the fortune 500 companies. So we're looking at 500 CEOs. We have three black, 10 Asian, and 10 Hispanic CEOs. That's less than 5%. Wow. So, so for me, so for me, as I look at that, I think what's the narrative, right? Cause we're all about the story and the narrative and, and the narrative for me is one of two things. It, it, for me, it says that white America does it better or people of color are inferior. It's one of those two, you choose. But that, that's how, as a person of color, that's how I see it. And that, and let's look at the data. That, that's what the Fortune 500 companies look like. And that's just the Fortune 500, right? And the troubling part is, is hard to get stats in our, our industry. You know, it, it's really hard to do that. So I would love to put a big flashlight on our industry and see what those numbers are. Because I, if I was a betting man, I, I'd, I'd say they're pretty similar mm -hmm. to that. So if we see that in this country that we're about 38% multicultural and diverse. So, you know, we're roughly over one third a diverse country, right? So like non-white, to put it into like lame's terms, right? Yet we're represented in the single digits when it comes to companies. And so it's really hard, really hard to make change, to influence change when you're not even invited to the table. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of power in, in representation. And, you know, one of, one of the books uh, I read over the summer is White Fragility. 
And in the book, she referenced how the author references how in Congress and, you know, teachers there, the, the professors that are made up in, in the top universities are upwards of 85 to 90% white, right? So again, going back, there's a huge lack of people of color in positions that the, where they can make change. So I feel that is a, is a huge, huge problem. Um, other areas that we can talk about would be microaggressions. That is a huge part of the story too, because microaggressions and unconscious bias just talks about the stereotypes. So when we think of a leader, because we're conditioned in the society, we think of tall, white man, loud, a little arrogant, charming, like that's, that's a leader right there. And because of the unconscious bias, we're so used to that being what we're familiar with. Anything that's different automatically becomes that's, that's wrong. Because mm -hmm. we're so used to leader looking like A, B, and C. So if you have D and E, well, that's not, that doesn't go with the picture and the narrative that we're so used to. Yeah. So being able to, to, to fix that narrative, number one, and being able to put more people of color. And when I say that, it, it goes f further and beyond the metrics of, let's just put a, a person of color on the board. And, and no, it, it's about appearance and experience. Mm -hmm. So I think those are a few of the handicaps and the hurdles that, that we face uh, in both our industry and in society. Yes, definitely. Well put. Thank you. How about you, Shamika? Um, I agree. I think both the challenge and opportunity is just getting um, people of color in those spaces. Um, like Anthony mentioned, like, you know, we, I want to see someone that looks like me. And that gives me hope and drive to, to pursue those things. I know for me, I'm active in the, with the National Coalition of Black Meeting Professionals. And when I first um, came in the industry in 20, 2014, I think, was my first, like, coordinator job, I went to their annual meeting and I was like, well, there's CEOs that look like me and association directors of meeting planners, vice presidents. I was like, oh, so I can do that. Like that I can, that I can, that can be me. Um, and that gives me the drive because I, I had a space to see that. Um, and so I think that is the opportunity um, that we have now, especially with, um, to be less than politically correct, um, people feeling guilty um, right now. Now is an opportunity for us, for for people of color, to say, "Hey, you know, I I want to help you. Like you, you, you want <laughs> diversity. Not to make it that simple, but like you know what? If you're going to open the door, I'm gonna I'm gonna swing it open. And not only that, I'm gonna bring people behind me too, because it, you know you've been missing out. And so like since it seems like you have this need, we're all here. Like, so what can we do together? And so I think that's a great opportunity, but it, it will be a challenge because also Anthony mentioned this too, like, you know, it's not uh, the job of people of color to, you know, do the work to, so you do have to, it has to be a mutually beneficial arrangement. Um, I mean, really, I'd probably say it might need to be not even mutually beneficial. You might have to kind of encourage us kind of, what are you doing to bring us to the table? Um, but i just to keep it simple, I do think there's the same opportunity is the challenge and it's bringing people of color uh, to the table, to bring them to the group, letting them feel comfortable. Another thing to, to, to look into and to remember is 
is yes, definitely, as I mentioned earlier, the why, but also how diversity and inclusion needs to be more than just a PC reason, but data has proven that it's good for business. And some numbers I wanted to share is that last year alone in, in this economy, the LGBT community had a $3.7 trillion economic impact. The Hispanic community had a 1.5. The African-American had a 1.3. Um, and the Asian community had a 1 trillion. So just within those four diverse and important uh, groups, we're looking at a $7.5 trillion economic impact. So any person, any organization who's interested in doing and having a competitive edge, you know, they would be silly and foolish to not consider diversity just on those numbers alone. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Thank you. Okay, Anthony, how about you? Yeah, Gus, send me those numbers. I have a lot of people I want to send those to. <laughs> 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 um, I would say uh, to go on the lines of what Shamika was saying too about, you know, we need to, it needs to be divided and the, the work that it's done. And I, I totally agree that it doesn't necessarily need to even be fairly divided. Um, asking, you know, if you're going to a cooking class, you can't expect the chef to do all the work, you know? So same, same, with, same with that, you just don't ask a person of color to show you how it's done. You need to be in the fight with them. Um, I also think a, a good way to go about it and it's something that we're working internally in our chapter is is not just to have educational sessions to teach about diversity equity and inclusion but to figure out how it um what it means inside of our industry and i think a lot of people think they can just do a session about dni to check a box but what does that have to do i mean you could do that in any organization or any job um it's great to, it's great to learn about it but what does it mean inside your world like when you're going to a conference what's a meeting planner thinking when they're how does this you know go into the job of a meeting planner how does this go into a job of a salesperson and that sort of thing so i think we need to be super conscious of of not only teaching of what it what it means but how it affects your everyday you know workload and 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 vision i guess um i have a my best friend in the entire world, her name is Allie. She works um, in administration at Evanston High School, Evanston Township High School. And she's just the, the kind of person that knows how to talk to you when it comes um, to everything diverse. I mean, she's a white, you know, cis female, but um, she's just really led the charge on um, really just being a supporter and an implementer and a trainer of DNI, all things high school related, which I think is cool. Um, but I think what is super important is that when we're having conversations with people that, you know, like you said earlier, that just don't get it or just don't want to get it, it's the approach on how you have that conversation. You know, if you start it with a why don't you get it, you're all of a sudden combative and they don't want to hear you and they shut you down. But sh the way she approaches these conversations is, is coming from it's almost like coming from the person that she's talking to and how they would react to what she was going to say to them. And then she, again, changes the changes her approach. Um, and so being around her, I've learned how to talk to people in a way to where it's like, okay, I, I totally get where you're coming from. Um, I understand you may feel like this, but 
why do you think you feel like this? You know, why do you think that that hurts? And then somehow has just magically gets them to see it from the other side. And I feel like those are the conversations that are being the most impactful right now. Um, because I think it's super easy for us to look at DE&I as a subject in school. You know, no offense to your certificate, because I definitely want to get on that. By the way, send me that information too. But I think it's like, it changes to every single person you talk to. You know, like not one LGBT or gay guy is the same as another gay guy. Just Not every black girl is the same as another black girl. So it's like a, you have to be totally sensitive and cognizant of your approach and conversation that um, it's the only way you're going to get things done. I think, I hope I made sense there. In my mind, I made total sense. I think that's a perfect place to end um, because I think you just summed it up there in a way where, I mean, really a big part of the conversation has to be about empathy, right? It's empathy um, to someone, you know, to, to the plight of, of people of color, but on the other side, you know, and it's a challenge and a struggle, but to have empathy towards people who also don't understand. And that sounds kind of strange to say, but the way Anthony just described it actually makes a lot of sense is, is in a way it's kind of like, well, if I put myself in your shoes and try to understand why it is you feel that way, then maybe we can get the conversation to come full circle and get you now to understand where I'm coming from. So, I mean, it's, it's hard and I, it, it's sad that we have to do so much work just to have conversations that seem like they should be, I don't know, common sense, right? <laughs> Rights for everybody, belonging for everybody. It, and, and that's, that's the other thing that came that was uh, really emerged from this conversation was belonging. I mean, you, Gus, you talked about it from the standpoint of going into a Louis Vuitton store. And Shemika, you talked about it from the standpoint of, you know, on the ASAE board or on um, the MPI board, a woman of color. And you said, well, she's there and now I would like to belong as well because I feel like I can, you know? And it's just one of those things that, it, again, it seems like it should just be common sense, but. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I thank you so much for joining me in this conversation today. This could go on for hours and I don't want to end it, but <laughs> but for the sake of, of timing, I will. But thank you. Maybe we can have a part two someday. But um, I really appreciate you guys being with me today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you again, Shamika, Gus, and Anthony. I'm honored to have you on the show to share your inspiring stories. And on a personal level, you gave me a way to contribute something positive to this important conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And for that, I am truly grateful. Well, that is a wrap on episode eight, and I want to hear from you. Please send feedback, show ideas, comments, questions, and of course, interest in participating to me at roomblockpodcast at gmail.com or send me a message on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. Thank you for joining me today, and please remember to subscribe to The Room Block so you can continue to join in the conversation. Mm -hmm.